Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. Today, we have Mark Rush Dooney on the show. Mark succeeded his father, R.J. Rush Dooney, as president of Calcedon in 1998. He oversees Calcedon's publishing arm of Christian Reconstruction Literature under the banner of Calcedon and Ross House Books and Storehouse Press. He also manages the Calcedon Ministry and preaches at Calcedon Chapel. And he's coming up next. Christian Education. Because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life Podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Okay, and we're back. We have, and we're welcoming Mark Rush Dooney. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. I thought maybe we could just start with an overview or a history of Calcedon. Well, hi, uh, Jesse and Courtney. I appreciate you having me on. I'm happy to be here. Um, Calcedon was started by my father in 1965. I don't know of an older Christian um, worldview organization. Uh, The whole idea of an organization dedicated to an idea was out of the ordinary, and many people advised my father against it. Um, They advised him, in fact, in 1965 that uh, if he wanted to financially survive, he needed to um, either have a religious revival-type meeting that begged for money a lot, or he needed to be anti-communist because there was big money in being anti-communist in the 60s. So it was kind of an innovative idea. He wanted it. The idea of Calcedon morphed over time because he was limited at what his budget with facilities he had. He thought at one time of perhaps starting a college or a study center of some kind. Uh, As it turned out, the opportunity that came to him was that people would support him so that he could write full time. And uh, that's really how it began over the years. We've had different scholars uh, on our staff, uh, full-time or part-time. And uh, so we've been able to to propagate this idea. And my father had this idea that that, um, we needed to move away from fixing things to a more fundamental approach to uh, changing things. Uh, and advancing the kingdom of God. And you have to remember, 1965 was just months after the defeat of Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election. Conservatives were very disheartened. And if uh, we go back a little before that, a few people realize that John F. Kennedy was not uh, a successful president in his lifetime. He had great opposition within his own party from the conservative Democrats, and they opposed his programs. He had trouble getting anything through Congress. And it was the belief of uh, Barry Goldwater that if he opposed him, he could probably win the the conservative Democrat vote, enough of it in the South to carry the South, 
He thought he could carry most of the country except probably New England and that Kennedy would be limited to the electoral votes from New England and therefore uh, lose. Now, all that changed when Kennedy died. He became a martyr. And now you had the vice president, Lyndon Johnson, who was a Texan, and Texas was a liberal state then. Uh, he was now the hero. And so being a Texan, the Southern vote gravitated towards uh, Johnson and um, the whole political climate changed. And so when um, uh, Goldwater lost in, in a landslide loss in 1964, conservatives were just downhearted. It, the Johnson was getting anything through Congress that he asked for. He started the war on poverty, which was basically just throwing money at things. And uh, Congress was passing everything Johnson, and they kept invoking the name of Kennedy. So the, invoking the name of Kennedy as a martyr for the Democratic cause really advanced the political uh, climate for the Democrats tremendously. And and conservatives were just felt that they had been run over by a, a bus within a matter of, of a year or so from the time of Kennedy's assassination to the election of um, 1964. And so they were very downhearted. My father began in Southern California. A group of uh, conservatives were just totally disillusioned and really just, uh, they felt they'd gotten a kidney punch and uh, they were down and out for the count. And he was trying to move them a bit away from uh, seeing the, the necessary changes as political to more fundamental and a religious change that was necessary in people. And he said the fault was largely the fact that uh, we've lost our Christian faith and America was changing and it was going to continue to change, he said, until, Christ uh, until America returned to its Christian roots. And that all the problems that we were having, which seem small now in retrospect, but he saw them moving more to what we have today. He says, we're going heading towards a systemic failure. He said, we were still living in the aftermath of the, the intellectual aftermath of the Enlightenment. And so things were failing. And again, if you go back to the 60s, when, when I was, you know, Cal Seton started when I was 11. And in the 60s, you still had the space race. You had what was a called at the time the cult of science. Science was going to solve all of our problems. And politically, we were going to create a brave new world. And people really believe that. Things have changed very dramatically in people's attitudes now. And people now have a much more cynical attitude towards everything. They don't know where to turn. They haven't necessarily turned in large numbers to, to the Christian faith and Christian answers. But they do realize that the world is in a mess. So that was the, the milieu in, in which Chalcedon was founded. And my father continued to teach that this is something that fundamentally, if, no matter how far we go through this process of disintegration of our culture, of our law, of our education, uh, we, we are eventually going to have to come back to these same issues. And ultimately the hope is in, uh, doing things God's way, more to say. He didn't appreciate the, the necessity of, of justification, but he said, we have to see why we have problems. And a lot of our cultural problems is because we're 
disobeying God. We're we're running away from God and hoping for a successful outcome. And he said, that's not going to happen. So he was looking at the at the big picture, what needs to happen uh, going uh, down the road. And he, he coined a term for it early on. It was Christian Reconstruction. And that is just like when you have, um, and I, I usually tell people that Christian Reconstruction is an analogy. And it's an uh, an. Uh, an analogy of the Christian's responsibility uh, in the face of a, the decline of culture and faith. So what do you do when you have an old building that's dilapidated, but it's maybe historically important? You you evaluate what needs to happen. And sometimes you have a building that needs to be torn down and you maybe just recreate something that looks just like it. But you have to evaluate what's wrong and and progressively address those issues before you can actually restore it to any kind of its former glory. And so that's what he was saying. We have to start from square one. Uh, It's the gospel doesn't tell men how to live, how to obey God. And so that's why he dug a little bit deeper and says, this is what a Christian culture looks like. And this is what we have to tell the world. Your education system is failing because it's ungodly. Your Our legal system is chaotic and full of injustice. And so we have to address these issues. So one area of an issue, and he said, the way you make sense of your culture and you make things work is basically you look at what God says. Because God's way works, so that's I, I can ramble on a lot, but that's that was the general message that he was trying to proclaim, and he started Chalcedon to do um, address the the bigger issue of what the church needs to face, not to depreciate that the you know the gospel in any way, but he's saying once we believe in Jesus, now how do we obey Him? How do we teach our children our fam- and our, have our families to be more godly? How do how does our uh, uh, our our work our calling more fully reflect what God intends it to be? What about our communities, our churches, and such? How do we uh, express this in our culture? And so that's what his his work was about. So you've already kind of given us some of the ideas or ways that a person can implement reconstruction, but do you want to expound on that a little bit more? It does look like our families and our work, um, but how can people begin to do that work of Christian reconstruction right where they are? Well, um, Christian reconstruction begins with our own regeneration. He never implied that this was something external that could be applied to the pagan world that would make it better somehow. He's saying that uh, only the Holy Spirit can cause regeneration and revival. But those of us who do believe in, in the gospel do believe that we were restored to fellowship with God. What do we do? What do we teach our families to do? Uh, how do we address issues in our churches and so forth? How do we apply this in our calling? And he very quickly came to the uh, to the, the idea that it was through God's law. 
and obeying God's law, because God's law was basically God's rules for how men should live with other men. And uh, he said very clearly in his introduction to biblical law that this was not about justification, as some people have accused him of believing in you know salvation by the law. It was really about the whole, whole issue of theonomy is about sanctification. It's how do we obey God? He said the Reformation came down squarely in favor of justification uh, by grace received through faith alone. But what the Protestant Reformation never came to an agreement was, well, then how do we, how are we sanctified? How do we grow in grace? How do we obey God? What does God expect of us? And the modern church usually teaches some form of obedience that's rather subjective, the leading of the spirit or follow the general principles of the Ten Commandments, but it um, doesn't like the idea that we have to be more specific, that, that obedience doesn't happen. You see, obedience doesn't happen accidentally. And they're saying, if we just have good intentions and want to follow God, that somehow we're going to do something that God wants us to do. Well, how specifically do we obey God? What's it look like? And that was the purpose of his, uh, he really revived the whole issue of theonomy and biblical law. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, if we can, let's just imagine Christian reconstruction. Let's say it's it's successful. And in the distant future, the Lord blesses the efforts of those that are Christians and Christian reconstructionists. And they have an understanding of theonomy and 500 or a thousand years from now, what would possibly the world look like in a Christian reconstructed world? I guess it's kind of a post mill question, but right. Yes. It's I, the, the longer I live, the more I come to understand the fact that our eschatology really um, influences our whole approach to the Bible um, because it's, and I think that's intentional because God told us about the beginning in Genesis. This is who you are and this is where you come from. And this is your problem right there in the first three chapters because chapter three of Genesis is about the fall of man. And he addresses that the, the resolution to that through Jesus Christ. But he also gives us the larger picture of where all this is going. And that is the, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and he's not a failure. And the world will be transformed by him, by his power. Uh, neither my, my father nor Chalcedon nor any um, uh, decent interpreter believes that man is going to usher in the kingdom by his works, which is another common criticism of, of my father uh, and the Chalcedon Foundation. It's We're just self-consciously trying to say, this is how man obeys God. So this is how the redeemed obey God themselves in their own lives, in their own families, and it moves outward from then. But ultimately, the number of people who are doing that is is determined by regeneration, which is only possible by the Holy Spirit. And I think what a more Christian society looks like is difficult to say. Um, 
And I think a lot of people, when they look at, you know, what, what is more godly and they look for examples in history and they said, oh, well, life a hundred years ago was more godly and their model becomes the past, which isn't very helpful. We're not going to go back to little house on the prairie of it you know, or, or, or colonial America, or we're not going to go back to the reformation. History moves forward. I think the future in the increasing kingdom of God is going to be a technological one. I think it's going to be one where science, good science, has um, done a lot of very good things So and, and very interesting things, things I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I've grown up through the whole computer era, and, and uh, so the things that we didn't even imagine were possible or just science fiction when I was a child are now commonplace. And I think we it's hard for us to even imagine the world that, that might be. If you add to, and that's just technology, medicine, and such. If you then add to that the much more powerful influence of the transformation that is possible by the work of the Holy Spirit, big things could happen. It could happen fast. I think we have, personally, I think we have, probably have a lot of history ahead of us. But I think one thing that has to change is the attitude of Christians, because I don't think we're going to see a tremendous amount of progress uh, if the church just keeps debating God's law and do we really have to obey this. I mean, that's a sign of stagnation. That's a sign that things aren't moving very fast. So um, it's very different than uh, I'm 69 years old. It's very different than when I was young. The church is, has a very different complexion to it now than it did then. These ideas are more prevalent. They don't dominate by any sense. Uh, they aren't the prevalent ideas but they've gained more traction. I think you have a lot more very faithful people who are oriented towards a covenantal view of the family and saying that our faith is a long-term proposition. And it's very different than, than the sort of the escapist mentality that was very prevalent um, when I was a child. And even things like... Uh, education when my my some of my father's first books were on education he started writing on the problems in public education in the late 50s there were people in the church who thought that was just reprehensible that he would in any way question the integrity of the public schools the public schools were like mom and apple pie they were an american institution there was nothing wrong with them and the church shouldn't be addressing such an unimportant uh topic and now the atmosphere is different. Not too many people want to defend the public schools anymore. <laughs> they might minimize how bad they are, yeah. but they don't tend to want to defend them like they were so inclined to. So progress is sometimes frustratingly slow, but there has been tremendous uh, progress. For instance, and, and some things pop up that you don't expect. For instance, my father promoted public uh, Christian education. He didn't really say how. And the early Christian school movement in the 60s, the revival, there were other like Lutheran schools and others, some other Christian schools, uh, 
programs before that, but 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 the real blossoming of Christian schools happened in the 1960s, partially because of his his writings. And the early models followed the public school method right. because that's what people knew. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's a very expensive way to educate people. And the the business plan was never thought out. And a lot of those Christian schools were started by a husband and wife in a church basement that they were allowed to use during the work the week for, for free. And many of them uh, couldn't succeed. And then you got larger families that were dedicated to Christian education. And they came to realize we can't really afford to pay tuition. See, in other words, the business model of the Christian school was a difficult one to maintain. And, out of the blue came homeschooling. Yep. And that surprised everybody about how fast it grew. Yeah. And people just didn't see it coming. And here in California, the, uh, what's his title called? The superintendent of public instruction, state office. He decided he was going to clamp down on it, on homeschooling. And he, he just stirred up a hornet's nest. He had no idea what he was getting into. Because, uh, and this is for, you know, 40 years ago, it turns out that there were a lot of liberals, a lot of new age people into homeschooling. And he just stirred, he immediately dis, um, uh, blamed his subordinates for trying to control these homeschools <laughs> and bring them under of course the he did. authority. <laughs> And it, the, the funny postscript to that is he later, later went to prison because he was funneling state contracts to his wife's business. <laughs> but with things change in ways that we can't imagine. Nobody saw homeschooling coming, uh, and it's not going away. And so it, it's hard for us to imagine what things might look like in 10 and 20 years. But uh, I often, you know, people are, are often discouraged about the evil that they see because we're attuned to seeing what's wrong. And we're, if you, if you believe in sin, then, and you're conscious about your own uh, need to, to rid yourself of sin, you see sin around you and and people see evil in the culture and they sometimes become very discouraged. I say, well, look at, look at what happened in the last 2000 years. Uh, Jesus was only around for a month after his resurrection. And then he told the disciples, now it's up to you. You go spread this to all nations. I'm leaving. And he's gone. And they did. And most of them died martyrs' deaths because of it. But look at what we have now. There are more Christians alive today than ever before. The kingdom of God is bigger than it's ever been before. It's certainly not yet perfect, but it has grown. Okay, what's happened to the Roman Empire? Okay, what's happened to all the religions that were prominent in the Roman Empire? They're gone. And in my lifetime, we've come to realize the major uh, extent to which Christianity has grown, for instance, in China. For a time, it had some freedom. Now it's been repressed again. But un under the previous repression, Christianity was still growing in China. 
Um, in recent years, we've also even found out that there are Christians in North Korea, perhaps the most difficult place to be a Christian in the world today, but they're there. And uh, even in uh, Islamic countries, many Islamic countries are now coming to, to Christ in significant numbers that have never been seen before since the rise of Islam. And many of them say one of the things that drew them to Christianity was the, the brutality and the violence that they see in this fundamentalist uh, uh, program of, of uh, many Muslims today. So there's a lot happening in the world, and we have, should have a lot of reason to be encouraged about the trends that we see. It's, it's much better than it was 50 years ago, certainly. And so we should be encouraged. But the, the death knells of humanism, the, the, the death throes of humanism, are, are, they can be ugly. And humanists are striking out in every way they can. And um, sometimes they think the things that uh, Christians are now facing look very, very intimidating. But all this can end very quickly. It may end up quickly. I don't know. It may, it may uh, drag on like this for a time. But there are a lot of positive things happening all around us. The world is changing very fast. And if you believe, if your eschatology um, believes that, that you know, Christ is not a loser, that he is Lord and he's going to continue to be Lord, that his kingdom will grow, then you say, well, this change is good because what we've had for the last uh, hundred years is is not good. And we want to see it decay. We want to see it fall away. Although we depend very heavily on the rest of the world. And so, yeah, this is going to impact our lives in in some ways that it's hard to even predict. But um, some things have to fall. Hebrews has a, uh, I believe it's Hebrews 11, has a, a verse that I think we remember that uh, that God is shaking things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And I think that's what we're living through now. We're living through a time of shaking. And and that Hebrews passage was was um, describing the time since Christ. It's, that's the Christian era, and we're still in that that shaking. And uh, some things need shaken up. And uh, we know that the kingdom of God will advance. Exactly how that's going to look is hard for us to predict. Sure. We'll just have to wait. <laughs> have you always been a, a student of your father's work? Well, it was hard not to be. I was <laughs> around him all the time. I heard a lot of his, you know, the talks that he gave on a, on a regular basis. So I understood what he was saying. I think from a relatively young age, I, I have to admit, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. It was when I, I went to Christian schools for most of my uh, uh, elementary and high years and high, through high school. Um, and sometimes we got a very different perspective then, particularly in the eschatology, which I didn't really understand their eschatology. It just 
it seemed bizarre <laughs> and it well it didn't help that um they would even pass around remember the old chick comic strips uh-huh. it was very popular right yeah. and he would he would talk about you know the rapture and so forth and little comic strip things <laughs> kids loved them they were very popular and uh but we just i heard some very bizarre things and i think some of my awareness was when i asked questions and my mother would pick us up at school and drive her and sometimes i'd comment about things that we heard at school and she'd give me a whole different perspective so from fairly early on i knew that there was a distinction between what i was being taught at home and what much of the church uh believed do you have a favorite work of your father's a favorite book that's very hard to say (laughs) um i can't say that i i really do i really like uh law and liberty one of the reasons i like that and i often recommend it to people particularly the first half of it or so it almost reads like a series of theses statements. Those were originally radio addresses. So he was encapsulating some of his thinking uh, in those addresses. And uh, it's just a lot of very powerful stuff, which he develops elsewhere in his various books, I think, too. And then I am very partial to a book that uh, we published after his death called uh, uh, The American Indian, um, my father served his eight and a half years on an Indian reservation in a remote area of Nevada uh, before I was born. And that was kind of a, a stories of Owyhee. He was a little tiny, a little community of uh, called Owyhee. And uh, I just always heard that term, Owyhee, growing up, hearing of stories on the reservation. I was always somewhat jealous of my siblings who had actually been there. And a few of them remembered things at Hawaii, and it was like what part of that family history that I didn't experience that I really wished I, I could have. But uh, years later, we, we did publish those. And I'm sorry we didn't publish them sooner than we did, because I, 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 we, I postponed them because I think, well, maybe those his observations on the Indians aren't that important compared to more of his theological things. But there's a, until I really dug into them, I didn't realize the extent uh, to which he, he, in addressing the Indian and his experience, it, it wasn't just his experiences, but he, he made a, some very important points in there um, that are important for mi- an understanding of missions and how you communicate with people. But one thing he, he said that was very powerful in there that I wish Americans had a better understanding of is that the reservation system really destroyed the Indian because it was essentially an early experiment in welfare. Mm-hmm. It subsidized the American Indian. And he said the old Indians, he knew, he had a member of his Presbyterian session on the reservation who could describe in detail how to scalp a man. Wow. Some of these men had remembered <laughs> seeing their first white man. Wow. Uh, they had actually fought in Indian wars uh, in the 1880s before they were forced onto the reservation. And so th- that was a, a just a, a fascinating, because in telling this story and his experience with the American Indians, it was just more about my father and his life 
And it was almost like a detailed diary of some of those uh, experiences that he had. So I think just from a personal perspective, I really enjoy his book, American Indian. Uh, but it is a very interesting and it's it's more than just personal recollections uh, of a sort. It's actually very worthwhile to understand. And I'll just tell one incident that he, he relates in there that he was talking to an Indian. He had been in the military. It was during World War II. He was back on the reservation now. He was somewhat disillusioned with his fellow Indians because he'd been out and he had seen the world. And he said the Indians had reservation fever, that they were too dependent on the government and this system. And he said something that, to the effect that uh, Americans, too, were getting reservation fever because that was the era of the New Deal and government programs to help people out. And he compared that to the reservation system. I think that's been a very prescient uh, uh, view of the future that's that's come to be very, very much. Wow. Wow. Well, if we could switch over to everyone's favorite topic, taxes, just for at least a brief moment. Uh, your father wrote in Tithing and Dominion, he talks a lot about unlawful taxes, i.e. property tax. Um, how should we as Christians understand uh, taxes biblically and what taxes are an overreach of the government? Well, my father felt that the only biblical tax that the Hebrews had was uh, not including their time, which was not really a political tax. That was something they were, it was a, a social tie. They gave to the Levites <clears throat> and the Levites then gave a 10th of it. The, a lot of the social functions that we now depend on government on were actually done through the Levites. The only political tax was a very small, I forget the amount, I believe it was a talent or half a talent of silver, a relatively small amount of silver by today's standards. If you look at the value of silver today, that would be a very small amount that actually went to the political structure. So that was not only always held to, but that's what the Bible uh, called for. Uh, and we know that Solomon enacted a, and others enacted much heavier taxes and it, caused, it ended up causing a split uh, and uh, Israel splitting off from Judah. But, uh, Yes, he. So he believed that a biblical taxation would be very low. <clears throat> he once referred to him as a Christian, something of a Christian libertarian. He believed that a biblical government would be very small. Now, I don't. In today's climate, I don't like to use the term libertarian because people then misunderstand it. Because a problem with modern political libertarianism is it's a, a view of man is man is supreme in libertarianism and it's the authority of man that that dictates the government rather than the authority of god so it has a very different view uh, of authority than um christianity but um he believed that that a, a legitimate government would be a very small government and i think if we lived in terms of biblical law family would be very prominent private um private associations would have a very prominent 
part in our lives. And this was once true in America. It's really been uh, since the since the end of the Civil War, when the federal government became very powerful and very controlling, and then the Federal Reserve System allowed the government to control the money. Whenever the government controls the the banking, it can create its own wealth, and that's what the federal the the government now does through the Federal Reserve. Most of the power of the federal government comes from the fact that they can create money at will. And just like a counterfeiter can live the high life because he's created taking something of no value and forcing people to take it in exchange for something of value. And that's what the government has been doing. And that's the, the reason for the power. And that's why he did talk a fair amount about inflation. And inflations usually end up bad for the inflating government. And that's something to look forward to in the future. How does our bad, our, our nearly worthless money, and we thought it was bad 20, 30 years ago, but it's even <laughs> worth far less today. I mean, in terms of the gold dollar, it's it's down to a penny or two compared to what the gold dollar would buy. When people refuse the government's money, it loses its power. And in the long term, I think that's a good thing to look forward to. It may be in our lifetime. I, we don't know. But something has to break. And uh, I think the, the power that governments, not just the U.S. government, but all governments now exercise is a very damaging thing for, for freedom. Americans used to be very, very um, sensitive to the issue of personal liberty. And they're not anymore. And something needs to shake their confidence that the government's going to fix things. And I think if the government's money is worthless, that's going to just completely destroy any confidence people have in the government. So, again, when things fall apart, something is going to come from that. And it may be a very difficult trans transition. Some people may be ruined. It's not going to be fun times to live through when things collapse, but it's necessary. Would you say the digital dollar is probably on the horizon then if our fiat currency as we know it now really does collapse? I'm not an expert in uh, digital currency. I'm, I uh, am very, very wary of it um, because the, um, I believe in hard currency and I believe the the value of, of this money could is subject to manipulation, whereas hard money is not. And I think after uh, the collapse of paper money, uh, 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 any uh, artificial standard, including you know something that's digital, is I think very problematic. So I don't have high hopes for digital currency. How does tithing affect government power and taxation? Well, tithing uh, guts are powerful when individuals are weak. And so that's why taking liberties away from people is important if government wants to increase its power. And tithing is basically God's taxation system on his people. Tithing is God's funding mechanism for his kingdom. 
So it's very hypocritical for Christians, I think, to say, oh, we long to see, you know, the kingdom advance. We we want to see this, but they don't tithe. They don't give there. They're basically tax rebels against God's kingdom. And so tithing is important because that is that is the funding mechanism that God has set up. So if we're not seeing the um, the growth of the kingdom, we have to say, well, how are we funding this this kingdom work in in all of its aspects? Everything from Christian schools to um, uh, the arts, and uh, all this is possible because of. God's people giving the money that God expects them to give. Uh, and frankly, Christians have become, you know, cheapskates because, and they want God's to advance his kingdom and fix their problems, but they're not, they're not paying their taxes, so to speak. They're not, they're, they're denying God the funding mechanism and, and expecting God to mirac- do it miraculously. So I uh, I think the lack of Christian giving today is is symptomatic of of the, some fundamental problems in the church. You know, much of Christianity in the in the West is basically because of their eschatology. They're expecting God's going to come back and fix everything, right? Yeah, and your father makes the point in tithing and dominion that when Christians are not tithing, the government grows. And when they begin to tithe, that can be a part of what shrinks the government because then the church is able to do things that right now the government's doing because they have all the funding for it. So it kind right. of works hand in hand. Right. The Levites had a very powerful function because that they were, we know they were doing, you know, the educational function in Israel. So, um, I apologize for that phone vibrating. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, uh Levites. Saying? <laughs> the Levites had a powerful system. Yes. The, the Levites had a very powerful, um, uh, role, very influential. We know they, they not only did things and they trained uh, the musicians for the temple worship, but they had a lot of the social welfare functions. The charitable functions were done by the Levites. And so that wasn't a function of the government. And for m- most of uh, Western history, government did not try to perform those functions. It's a fairly new thing that government does as much as it does. And part of the reasons it can do that, it says, well, money is no object. We'll just create more of these uh well it's not really paper money anymore it's just digits on a computer we couldn't possibly print all the dollars that are circulating digitally today so um fiat money government created by the decree of the government is the funding mechanism for the tyranny that now marks governments throughout the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and, that, and if we return to private associations and things like the Levitical functions, and I think the church today follows really, we don't follow the temple pattern because we don't have priests. We don't need a temple. We really follow more of the 
um, synagogue and the Levitical model, which means the church needs to take more of a role. I think one of the simplest things the church could do is help parents out in matters of their education. Uh, because that's enough people know how, about Christian education that they could be a help there, but also in, in charitable matters uh, to their members and uh, the community at large. And I think these are areas where the church could start taking back um, ground. Because I, I, as as our culture collapses, one of these days, um, what the government gives us is going to be worthless it's going to stop altogether it just can't go on forever yeah yeah like you've said your father was very prescient about the future he really had an understanding not only of his own time but he could somehow see it seemed as if when we go back we'll listen to talks that he gave back from the 60s or read his books from the 50s and the 60s and he could see what was going to sort of happen not like a prophet but somebody who could just almost read the times of his of his of his own time and also of the future how do you think he was able to see things so clearly i i think he had this this big picture um approach and i think he he studied the bible a great deal and he saw the implications of believing something that wasn't uh, patterned after god's word that in other words Rebelling against God never works out well. The first temptation to uh, Adam and Eve, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. It didn't work out, you know, as they thought, as well as they thought that that was a lie. And we look at politics. Politics is full of promises, and this is where we're going. And we never seem to get to all the the, the good place the politicians tell us we we will be in just a wanted more administration uh, under their authority. And and I think he had an interesting background, too. His parents escaped from the um, massacre of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire during World War I. Uh, The Armenians had a culture that goes back to ancient times, you know, well before Christ. And for about 500 years, they'd been under Turkish Muslim rule, increasingly persecuted. And I, and eventually during World War One, they were able to, um, you know, escape and the uh, Armenians were actually executed and just, they tried to eliminate, they did eliminate them entirely. Those who couldn't make it out of the country, um, died or had to accept Islam as their religion. And so the fact that um, he saw that the growth of paganism and where it leads to and an opposition to Christianity, he realized the that there was a, a an, that there's no such thing as secularism. It's something is Christian or it's not Christian. And therefore, had to take a stand in terms of Christian faith and action and that the consequences of rebelling against God were going to systemically cause things to get worse and worse. You never get to that promised land such as politicians often are offer. Uh, communism 
classic example of offering a a uh, finish line that's going to be a be- new beautiful world that never happens all that you get is the is is the brutality uh, and repression of communism and i think he saw that the world of humanism was coming to that and and i i think we've it's our world has gotten a lot uglier in recent years and i think that's becoming more and more apparent but it's not good enough just to say oh we knew it would end badly for them <laughs> we need to propose something better and even though our culture as a whole is not ready to embrace this um it's still the only answer you know public education is not going to get any better and so what did people did they abandoned it and came up with alternatives and i think one of the perhaps the most positive thing in the last 50 years in the west has been the growth of christian education it's created an a new base not a massive one but a large one from which good things are going to happen and i think likewise we need to go into one area after another we've done more in the area of christian education some areas it's very difficult to get into um the justice system is it's hard to get in there bit by bit if you you don't control it it's difficult to, to control the courts and uh, but there have been efforts Mm-hmm. to train Christian lawyers and and uh, even Christian law schools. So there's some positive things happening. And uh, I think we sh- we should be encouraged by a lot of what's what's happening. Yeah. Do you have any favorite illustrations or stories that your father used? Well, <clears throat> he wasn't too much for um storytelling, right? In, in his um Formal presentations, but I there there are passages from the Bible that he regularly brought up because he thought they were important for people to understand. He one of his most frequently quoted passages was from uh, Genesis three five and understanding the temptation to Adam and Eve and the nature of all sin. It was he shall be as gods, knowing good and evil which he interpreted that knowing not just a, an intellectual understanding of good and evil, but knowing as a God knows, determining good and evil. So he said the first temptation was to be your own God and to do what you wanted to do and place your will in, in, over the will of God. And he said that's the nature of our problems. And man wants to play God rather than submit to God and in, in, in his word. Another um, common passage he quoted was, um, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. The inversion of good and evil. Again, we're seeing that a lot in the culture. But in fact, it doesn't work. Uh, man imitates good and evil. So what they have to do is they have to work in God's con- in God's constructs. Mm-hmm. And we, we, so we have to accept a good and evil. The most we can do, we can't get rid of one or the other concept because they're built into our, 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 our 
our being is created in God's image. We can't escape them. So what we do is we we have to reinterpret good, call what is good evil, and we call what is evil good. Mm-hmm. And uh, he referenced that a lot, and I think that helps us understand a, tr- a, a tremendous about, amount about the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. There, and you, when we think of some of the insanity of what's going on in the world today, such as you know the gender confusion, um, that's just an effort to try to define things in a, an absurd way and claim it's true because we say it's true. Um, the, so much of so many things are coming to a head today, and when it seems like there are things are are the world is is bizarre and just absurd and illogical it's because it is mm-hmm. and it's yeah. not going to go on like that forever you know when the reformation started venereal disease was extremely common in europe mm-hmm. and it was really the moral reforms of the reformation that got a handle on that uh, and i'm we need to look forward to to such things happening again. The insanity is not going to last forever, yeah. but it shows that things are coming to increasingly coming to a head. Just uh, just spitballing a guess here. When you say it's not going to last forever, just guess for us: five years, ten years, fifty years left. Um, I think I don't know. I honestly can't yeah. say. But I think what, what's I think what we need to to look at as some indicators is whether there's revival of Christianity. Right. And I think that's, and I don't mean outward signs of revival, but I mean people turning to Christ. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the thing. The spirit has to, to do that. You know, we can lay the foundation, um, uh, when the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, they can still be righteous. Yeah, they can be the remnant. And right now, I think we're still in, in in the mode of being a remnant. But if we believe that the Spirit is going to work, if we believe the kingdom of God is going to grow, then we can be optimistic, even if we don't know if we're going to see a great deal of change in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. If people want to learn more about Chalcedon and what they're doing, hear more about your father's teachings and ideas, read his books, where should they go? Well, our website would be the easiest place to go. It's chalcedon.edu. Chalcedon is a little difficult to spell. (coughs) Excuse me. C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, chalcedon.edu. And you'll find a great deal material there it's a huge website awesome thank you so much and you also have a podcast right that people yes can we have podcasts to. and you get information about those on there yeah uh, you're, well. you're on the podcast you andrea and martin yes uh yep. andrea schwartz martin Selbretti, and yes. myself yes we we enjoy the we enjoy that podcast it's a good one great yeah. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. All right. Well, I, I enjoyed uh, talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools 
to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.